calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to Story Smack. This is Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. This week, we're discussing the 1986 cult classic Big Trouble in Little China. FDO, can you give us an intro? Uh, first, well, uh, yes. My name is Scott Segler. I'm number one New York Times bestselling novelist, and we're all getting on the Pork Chop Express. Ooh, well, we're, we're all going to a very get. large truck through very, very tiny, tiny streets. Absolutely. Yes. And as always, uh, we are blessed with uh, Empty Set Movie Maven Rob Otto on this cast as well. Rob, how are you doing? It's all in the reflexes. It's all you need to know. <laughs> so uh, we normally start this uh, Story Smack podcast by you taking on your movie announcer voice yes, and giving yes, us do. a synopsis. Yes, this we week we are talking about Big Trouble in Little China, if you haven't guessed so far. So can you give us the, the rundown? The official movie synopsis is like one sentence long. <laughs> so uh, I, went, I went to IMDb and got what I think is a good is one. Is the Hold official on, one so. like, just watch this, just just watch it? Yeah, or don't. We don't know what we're doing. The official one is like, watch it or don't. We don't care. We already made our money, uh, which they didn't. Here we go. <laughs> when trucker Jack Burton agreed to take his friend Wang Chi to pick up his fiance at the airport, he never expected to get involved in a supernatural battle between good and evil. Wang's fiance has emerald green eyes, which makes her a perfect target for an immortal sorcerer named Lo Pan and his three invincible cronies. Lopan must marry a girl with green eyes so he can regain his physical form. Now, Jack must save Wang's fiance from Lopan and his henchmen and win back his stolen truck. But how can he defeat an enemy who has no body? It's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, everybody a, deserves somebody. They do, or nobody. Or nobody. Uh, uh, an enormous amount of uh, unclear antecedents for the pronouns in that, the since I'm in the audio booth right now recording the... Stone Wolves audio. There book. is quite a lot of cursing about um, antecedents. Very cognizant very antecedents. A lot of antecedents lot of are complaining. About super, super, super important. All Want right. me to give you the financial rundown? Yeah, let's talk about. I always like talking about the money of these movies. So let's get. Yeah, it, let's and get this is that. a big deal because back in 1986, it cost 25 million dollars uh, to make Big Trouble in Little China, which is about 59.6 million dollars in today's dollars. Okay. It bombed at the box office. I know you're surprised. Uh, making back one, or I'm sorry, $11.2 million worldwide. Yeah. Ouch. That's 40% of the production budget. That is not the direction you want those numbers to go. It's, uh, it, it, was, it was not good, which we're going to get into Ooh. in a little bit. But that makes first me feel all, bad all over again. We're going to give you our, our high-level thoughts about the movie. Then we're going to start breaking it down character by character, actor by actor, bit by bit. Let's go with Rob. What are your general thoughts on this movie? 
Well, the numbers really tell the story of this movie. The the production company, 20th Century Fox, thought they were getting one movie and they got a different one and they screwed up every step of the way with this movie. Essentially, guys, in the U.S., they released this movie for one week and then <laughs> oh, it, it was it hit nowhere near the numbers. So they pulled it out of theaters one week. Is what they gave this movie. And we're talking about it 35 years later. So, yeah, they screwed up big time yes. with this one. And they were fingers all in it. They changed it. They they never understood this movie. And thankfully, people found it on VHS. Yeah, VHS. for sure. And there are a handful of success stories like that, for sure. We'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, but I actually, this is another interesting movie. It's a throwback. This is an anniversary for this movie, right? Isn't it like the 35th. 35th anniversary 35, for this? Yeah. Um, and I am always interested in movies that hold up for whatever reason they hold up. And this is a fascinating one because it holds up and I still don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think you will, we'll talk a little bit, bit about this later, Rob, um, in our in our chat before the cast. Okay. Rob brought up that that. Um, it's essential for Jack Burton to believe he is the hero of his own story. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think and that's my favorite. And I think that's my favorite part. Like he just swaggers into every room and he's not belittling anyone else as much as he's puffing himself up. And I will always love that. And I don't know why they pulled it after a week. Yeah. And of course, as everyone knows, uh, Big Trouble Little China is the Citizen Kane of all action, adventure, comedy, kung fu, ghost story, monster movies. And, true. Uh, I can't think of a better that's one. True. That's true. That's it's that's the king. Not a bad, it's the yeah. king. That's how John Carpenter described the movie. And it, for that, from that perspective, he hit he hit it right on hit the nail right on the. Yeah, he yeah. knew what type of movie he was making. Just the <laughs> studio didn't. <laughs> Can we talk about our beverages? Are you guys yeah, beveraging? Yeah, yeah. It? we uh, are. Uh, I, this looks beautiful. What are you drinking? Well, I made a San Francisco. I figured ah, it was apropos. How smart. And there's, there's actually a San Francisco made with slow gin and vermouth. That is not this one, even though that would work in this glass. But this mm -hmm. is a San Francisco with vodka and triple sec and just a little bit of grenadine. So It's cheers. beautiful. It looks beautiful. I, Scott is drinking a Blackberry Smash because we have blackberries in the groceries, uh, grocery orders this week. And he loves nice. blackberries, so mm -hmm. I made a Blackberry Smash. And I'm drinking, uh, it, uh, I'm drinking Fresca. <laughs> oh, you want a press I, I'm hanging, I'm uh, hanging photos at my house, oh, so I, I'm doing this. that. Here you go, um, there we go. That'll fix everything right there. All yeah. right, very, very nice, very nice. Let's get into uh, the cast. I love talking about the cast. First, a lot of people don't know there's a really weird, weird backstory to this movie. And Rob, uh, we have to talk about we have to talk about the screenwriter first. Tell us about that. So originally. This was a movie set in the Old West, right? Mm -hmm. That's where its roots were. The, mm -hmm. He was supposed to be, Jack Burton was supposed to be, you know, delivering like meat to the Chinese rail workers as they were making, you know, the rails. And they uncover this whole low pan thing while they're digging the railroad tracks, right? That mm -hmm. was the original movie. Um, and you even see some throwbacks, like the weird moccasin boots that, that Kurt Russell wears mm -hmm. and the, the duster he wears at the beginning of the end. And, and the, the saddle, the bag, saddle bag, right, that he carries all his crap around in. So, And when Carpenter read the first script, he said it was unreadable. So he gave oh, it. Wow. Um, yeah. He gave it to uh, Walter Hill, who wrote 48 Hours. He was the first one they wanted to get to rewrite it. And he said, no, nah, I can't do anything with whatever this piece of crap is. <laughs> oh, no. So, so then, thankfully, W.D. Richter, who's the guy who directed Buckaroo Bonsai, mm -hmm. right, which is just an off-the-wall, fantastic, you know, 80s extravaganza, weird 
movie. Wonderful. And he had the sensibility to understand what he was looking at. And so mm -hmm. he threw out most of the original script to the point where uh, Goldman and Weinstein aren't even credited as writers wow. on this movie. It wow. is just W.D. Richter who rewrote it. And he's the one that turned into it. And this is, this is the crazy part, right? When you look at this movie, did either of you think of Rosemary's Baby? No. Nope. Did not. No, no, nope. no, you did not. W.D. Richter did. And, <laughs> and the thought being that there's the real world that everyone perceives. And then there's this weird kind of second underworld that only some people ever experience in their life. So the same way that the devil worshipers in Rosemary's Baby ah. were acting on a level that nobody else realized is the same way he kind of created low pans reality below little china and that was it and so mm -hmm. they wanted a big strong lead and it ended up being kurt russell and the guy who uh, started this script was gary goldman who went on to write total recall so it's very interesting yeah. that he had such a, a bad script to start with yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's not that he was a bad writer. He just wrote a bad script. Wrote a bad script. Right, which which we know certainly happens because we've all seen movies that are that like like should be good but they don't quite hit and it's yeah. one of those things. I think one of the things that made this story last uh, and become the hit it was once it once it was found on VHS or whatever is certainly Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell plays this part I think pitch perfectly and at the time he is sort of somewhat somewhat sort of new not really new in his career but the movies that he's done to this point prove his worth and prove that he yeah. can pull anything uh quick note if you guys hear some sort of noise in the background they're re-roofing today uh where we live so and they're right above us sometimes and so. he, wasn't, he wasn't new at all he'd been a disney <laughs> actor since the 60s well right i, I guess right. i meant in his leading man fame sure, sure but the movies that he did before he took on this one are <clears throat> going to be no surprise to anybody they're escape from new york you've probably seen it if not you should this is about everything on this list i'm about to talk about he did the <laughs> thing in 1982 before big trouble in little china big trouble comes in 86 and he does stargate in 94 and then is eventually all the way up to 2007, he's in Guardians of the Galaxy. So he has a long storied career in Hollywood playing this sort of guy. And one of the wonderful things about Big Trouble in Little China is he has great comedic chops and he's good at being a surprise in the role that he's in. And you mm -hmm. see some of that in uh, Overboard and Death Proof. Death Proof, which comes later in the 2000s, mm -hmm. which is awesome. You see that in Tango and Cash, obviously. <laughs> like He's got to have a real solid handle on his leading man status mm -hmm. to be in Tango and Cash yeah, and make sure. that movie yeah. funny, you know? And I think he does a great job. Um, <clears throat> but then also he and, um, and uh, John, Carpenter, John Carpenter, they have a pretty yeah. big history too. They did... Uh, what was it in 1978? They did Elvis. Uh, oh yeah, Elvis in 1978. Uh, two years later, they paired for Escape from New York, and then uh, after that, they paired together for The Thing. So this is another thing that you find over and over again, where an actor and um, and the director have this symbiotic relationship, where they know their strengths and weaknesses, and they know the other person's strengths and weaknesses too. Uh, so then he eventually does in, in 1986, of course, he does Big Trouble in Little China, and he turned down the lead in Highlander to take <laughs> this role. That's impressive. Well, now, here's Which, the thing. It's probably regrettable at the beginning of Li Big Trouble in Little China's history, mm -hmm. but it grows into the right decision, I think, probably. Yeah. In the studio. Well, actually, it goes into the right decision for... Um, 
for the other movie too, because that's such a classic. And I don't know if Kurt Russell pulls it off the way yeah, that he did that. Yeah, oh, good point. Yeah, it's a good point. Would have been fun to see. And the studio at the beginning wanted either Clint Eastwood or Jack Nicholson to play Jack Burton, but both were working on other films at the time, and Carpenter <laughs> wanted to work with uh, Russell, so that's where it ended up, and I'm happy for it. <laughs> Yes. Do you guys think we get the comedy that we get from Kurt Russell in Jack Burton if it's either Eastwood or Nicholson? Uh, Nicholson, or Eastwood's not known for his comedic timing, although he did uh-huh. Any Which Way You Can, Any Which Way I Belose. Those were fairly funny. But, I think, uh, though, the, the choice of co-star there, and I'm not being sassy at all, I think the choice of co-star there really matters. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's easy for yeah. I think it's easy for him to kind of cut up against an orangutan. <laughs> I'm not being sassy, really, though. Like it's, no, it's, you're right. If he's this big serious actor and he's done all these gritty things, like he can't really do that unless it's a kid or an animal. Mm-hmm. And a cute orangutan is the way to go. I think there was a sort of a not cute orangutan in this movie, some kind of monster. And uh, that's true. Which was very orangutanish. It could be. It could be Clyde. And then, of course, we have the history of work between Kurt Russell and director John Carpenter. John Carpenter, also a legend of sci-fi and horror comedies, he is the writer director of most of the Halloween series. He did Escape from New York, of course, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, The Fog. They Live, which is an ultimate classic, which we'll have oh, to yeah. cover someday. They did, uh, he did Christine, he did In the Mouth of Madness. And for Big Trouble in Little China, he reunited with cinematographer Dean Cundy, who shot Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing with Carmen. So, very experienced team. Um, he's also, of course, a musician and the guy who wrote that um, timeless Halloween theme. Dun, 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 yeah. You know, <laughs> that's right. just, you hear it's every, huge. Every Halloween you hear that that song. And this is uh this is one of my favorite parts. He also is uh he was in a band called the Coupe de Vils. And the Coupe de Vils performed Big Trouble in Little China's theme song, the title song <laughs> for the movie. And that is John Carpenter's band. And holy crap, you guys, the video is absolutely amazing. We're going to go ahead and He's take a look at this. He's just an absolute beast. I love it. We're going to take a look at this <laughs> right now. Well, that didn't work. Okay, so we're You're looking over here. You're going to the sound? Here we go. And... That we'll probably get uh, some kind of copyright violation. But those of you who've never seen this, you're going to love it. Here we go. Enjoy. There's nothing more 80s than this. <laughs> so synthy. <laughs> this is not Adam Sandler, you guys. And the keys. How has no one redone this? <laughs> oh yeah! Oh, go down for And for those of you listening at home, this guy looks exactly like Adam Sandler. I feel like Adam Sandler. I don't know. I wish I could have found my tweet jacket. Yeah. <laughs> If you are listening to this on the podcast, not joining us on the live stream, we do every other Saturday, you are going to want to go to YouTube and look up the Coupe de Ville's Big Trouble in Little China. It is uh, absolutely spectacular. It's John Carpenter in the editing room, yeah. ro- rocking out while he's editing I the mean, movie. because, but here's here's an interesting side note for the Siglerverse. This room that we're in right now is Scott's office, and he can just as easily write a novel as he can produce a song in this room. So maybe John Carpenter had just set up his editing studio and his music studio <laughs> in the same room, you could, know, could with, with lots of skinny ties. So we have Kurt Russell, we have John Carpenter, <laughs> we have a script. We have to get to our female lead who has, since this movie, gone on to become a, a massive star. Already was well on her way. Rob, talk to us about Kim, the lovely, amazing Kim Cattrall. 
Yeah, Kim Cattrall is probably one of the, well, I was about to say one of the most accomplished, but we're about to get to a couple of guys who are way more accomplished than Kim Cattrall, right? But leading into this, she was a known commodity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, she'd done a lot of TV work, a lot of episodic stuff, Charlie's Angels, Logan's Run, Tales of the Gold Monkey. Then her big hit came uh, in Porky's in Mm -hmm. 1981, right? And we all... Real, real fond of Lassie. I know that was a, an important time in my life. Uh, and then Everybody was like, up. wait a second. I have tube socks. <laughs> I have tube socks. Maybe I can get Kim Cattrall. Yeah, uh, exactly right. Except I was using my tube socks. I wasn't going to. As soon as I said it, I thought, oh, maybe that was a mistake. Oh, that was a mistake. Was a Didn't know those could stand on their own, did you? Um, okay. hey <laughs> And then follow that up with Police Academy, which yep. is another, you know very goofy movie and that was the reason why honestly carpenter wanted kim cattrall right from the beginning but the studio didn't want her because Mm -hmm. of goofy films like porky's Mm -hmm. and like police academy which again shows that they have no idea what kind of movie john carpenter right they wanted a rock star and i don't know like who were the big rock stars of the day that could fit into this role right i mean like Debbie Harry? Debbie Harry, Lita Ford, Joan Jett. Lita Ford? Yeah. Joan Jett? They could have got, if they could have got Madonna for this, who was at the the peak, like one of her first multiple peaks. Oh, okay. Well, she's 86, so this is quite early and not yet an actor. She's mostly a musician here. A musician musician and a dancer in 86, because she's just starting to come into her super duper stardom. Okay, okay. But yeah, Yeah, maybe she hadn't done Desperately Seeking Susan yet? Yeah, I think it's right around now. Interesting. I'll take a quick look. So anyway, they they didn't want her, but Mm -hmm. Carpenter got his way and she was, Kim Cattrall says she always loved this role because she wasn't just the side, you know, piece. Mm -hmm. She wasn't just the screaming woman, damsel in distress. She is an accomplished, strong uh, lawyer who pushes the plot forward as much as anybody else does. Mm -hmm. And that's what she loved about it. Mm -hmm. Also, she was at the time starring in a stage production. And so she had to be off the set every day at like 4.30 in the afternoon. So Mm -hmm. they shot around her schedule. That's how much John Carpenter wanted her for this movie. And so it's, and it's really interesting because both the female leads who were supposed to have these emerald green eyes, both had brown eyes. And so they <laughs> had these, these, and remember it was hard contacts back in the middle. Oh, yeah. were essentially yeah. pieces of colored glass and they bothered her eyes so much that she had to put them in like 45 minutes before they started shooting so that her eyes would stop watering wow. in time to make the camera roll. So yeah, it was, uh, it was it was a chore for her, but she was very happy to be playing a strong woman in a movie. Which and was uh, a you know, from what she'd done to that point, and then of course she eventually goes on and ends up, you know, being Samantha yes. um, in and um, Sex and why the City. Why Sex and the City? You, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right. And I mean, that's one of the strongest female characters ever on TV. So yeah. But I think that she's always done this. You know, it's interesting because if you want to, you can kind of you know poo-poo the the roles in Police Academy and Porky's that mm. she chose. But she was non the character and the actor were non apologetic. It yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. oh, I want you to like me. I want to do anything. Like she was there to get hers. In you know in Porky's right. It wasn't about please love me. Yeah, it, yeah, right. Yeah. She and she does the same thing here. She ignores Jack Burton. Every time he's like, hey, little miss, let me see if I can flirt with you. And she's like, I am trying to get shit done. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, right. Dan exactly. Baker, don't give me a dollar uh, penalty there. It's true. Or and, Nelson. Uh, Kim Cattrall, of course, went on to do sci- sci-fi gold, which is shot being Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And speaking of sci-fi gold, we have to talk about, oh, there's, there's Samantha. We have to talk about <laughs> James Hong. Hey, talk to us about James Hong. I can't believe I get to talk about James Hong. I feel like this should have been one of you because come Victor on Hong. with this. Oh. Uh, Victor. No, huh. it's Victor Wong and James Hong. I screwed those up on the script. Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Um, okay. James Hong. Sorry. So uh, this is James Hung. He played Lo Pan, of course. Yes. Different uh, guy. Whole different guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was also in the original Blade Runner as Hannibal Chu. And uh, uh, Scott, what does he do? Hey, uh, he only does eyes. <laughs> I only do eyes. Wow, it feels so uncomfortable, but it, yet it shouldn't be. He's so good in that. Uh, he actually has a long and storied history as a character actor on TV. He, if you love an 80s TV show, he was probably in that TV show <laughs> yeah. for some part of that time. Um, and the crazy thing about this is his acting chops and his resume are s- absolutely incredible. Not only is he memorable forever just for that one role, mm-hmm. uh, he's been essentially steadily acting as an actor since 1954, and he has two projects in 2021 set for release, including Gremlins, The Secret of the Mogwai TV series. Yep. Are you Dude's kidding still working. me? Dude is still working. <laughs> I know. But, and you know what? That's a 67-year career. Yeah, Are incredible. you kidding me? Six, not, six, you know. not 67 years old. 67 years of acting on, on the regular. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh-huh. And to be fair, today, honestly, he might be best known for being the voice of Mr. Ping in Kung Fu Panda. Yep. And that is also well, well deserved. I yeah, think. that the, uh, a so, mystery ingredient in my noodle soup. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. Yes, yes, Judge Wolf. There is a new Gremlins TV show uh, uh, which is coming out. Here's a quick question for you: How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And another character actor who is had a long career, is no longer with us, unfortunately, is Mr. Victor Wong, oh. who played Egg Shen. Uh, is that Magic Potion Egg? Yep. And he, of course, <laughs> he's got a massive sci-fi pedigree, not only Big Trouble in Little China, not only the Golden Child, he was mm. also in 
He was also in Tremors, which is one of my favorite movies. And speaking of the Golden Child, Rob, uh, what? Mm-hmm. And he says, "Let him ask." What does he ask about? I said, "I, I, I want the knife." <laughs> <laughs> Mister Mister Shen did a ton of work. He died in two thousand one. And he was working quite steadily from 1984, and that's mm-hmm. a 17-year run of pretty steady work. Um, the final cast member we will talk about in this movie, because it's got some interesting backstory to it, which I'll pitch it back over Rob, talk about Dennis Dunn, who played Wang Chi. Mm. Oh, Wang Chi is the hero of this movie. As much as, you know, Jack Burton doesn't want to admit that, mm-hmm. Wang Chi and really Egg Shen, they're, yeah. they're even the a one and the 1A hero. And, mm-hmm. and probably Gracie is after that. So Jack Burton's way down the line, right? Just don't tell 20th Century Fox that. But yeah, Carpenter hired Dennis Dunn, but he wanted Jackie Chan. That was the mm-hmm. original thought. Okay. That, and Jackie Chan was barely known in the States. He'd done a small part in Cannonball Run. He'd obviously done you know all of his movies overseas, but he wasn't well known and his English wasn't very good. And so they were afraid. I mean, this is Dennis Dunn is, again, the hero. And mm-hmm. the big speaker, and he gives all the exposition, and he gives all the backstory, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he drives the plot. And with Jackie Chan's broken English, they they were just afraid that they couldn't do it. So Dennis Dunn gets the part. Jackie Chan is still in the movie. That first fight uh, yep. between the uh, the Chang Sings and the Wing Tong Tang, um, they are Jackie Chan is one of the the first guys that comes out, and you, you, know, you can still see him yeah. in this yeah. movie. Unfortunately, he- he's not one of the warriors later on in the movie, but he's right there in the first scene. So. Yeah, and so Dunn, get this. So he was up for a TV miniseries mm-hmm. and Big Trouble in Little China. And his agent said, listen, go with the sure thing. Go with the steady work. Go do the miniseries. But since W.D. Richter had written the script, Dennis Dunn was a huge fan. Did I say Dennis Dunn? Yeah, that's what it okay. is. Okay, okay, good. Okay, sorry. Um, he was a huge fan of Buckaroo Banzai which is what Richter was kind of best known for. And so he decided he wanted to work on the movie that the Buckaroo Banzai guy had written. Mm -hmm. And so he comes in and and he's got it. And he had such a wonderful time working with Victor Wong, the guy who plays Egg Shen. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had a long, they had actually worked on some uh, different like plays and stuff around the San Francisco area. They worked together a number of times. Dennis Dunn named his daughter Victoria after Victor Wong. That's very sweet. Oh, cool. I love so that's, that. very, that's very the relationship um, that they that they built up. So so you've got Jack Burton and mm-hmm. the studio wants him to be the superstar of this movie, but it's really Wang. And you Oops. can even tell. So so Carpenter wanted to go against, you know, white hero Asian sidekick. He mm-hmm. wanted to flip that on its head, you know. And to show that, he even puts Wang in like an Indiana Jones fedora. Okay. The first time we meet him during the gambling scene, mm-hmm. he's got the hero outfit on. He's mm-hmm. ready to take charge of this thing. And and part of that was, and this is a great quote from uh, from Carpenter, Jack Burton's a guy who's a sidekick but doesn't know it. He's an idiot blowhard. He's an American fool in a world that he doesn't understand. And I think that encompasses him so much. If he does not have Wang, Mm-hmm. None of the stuff that happens Correct. happens. I mean, there's a yeah. there's this great couple of scenes where Jack Burton takes himself out of the fight, and when he finally comes back to it, Wang has basically already kicked everybody's butt, mm-hmm. right? Because because again, Wang's the hero of yes. this movie. Yes, 
And the nice thing about having uh, Jack Burton as the hero, the anti, the uh, sidekick who doesn't know he's not the hero, is he's mm-hmm. never bothered by that. He's just like, oh, thank you for clean. Uh, thank you for he's, doing this. He's uh, thank you for he's yeah. And that makes it lovely because if he's aware, like we we see that trope a lot too, where the hero's unqualified but doesn't want to admit it, and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. that changes every dynamic because then he's putting he he all of his uh, staff so to speak is or team is put upon and that doesn't happen here and i think that that's i, I think that that's really lovely what's happening with my voice do you hear that it just reflected off the paper oh, okay. that's all yeah, yeah um, jack burton doesn't know he's unqualified yeah mm-hmm. it's the interesting thing take jack burton out of this movie what happens differently the only big thing he gets is that it's all in the reflexes and he he's the one that gets low pan mm-hmm. somebody else could have done that Everything else in this movie would have happened without Jack Burton, mm-hmm. exactly the way that it happened. And I'm it, just saying. It also sort of teaches you inherently, or, or teaches the audience inherently, that the being a hero is not about getting the hero accolades. It's about doing the job. Mm-hmm. And we get that is true of Dennis. Dennis uh, 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 Dunn. Dunn's character is total. That is totally true. He just wants. He wants his girl. He wants this still over, and he wants his life to continue. And mm-hmm. that's it. And Jack is, of course, like the hero of his own story and that sort of thing. Speaking of which, so to, to that point, Scotty, let me jump right into the next point mm-hmm. that we have on here, right? Is that the the opening scene that feels tacked on and not attached to anything else that happens in the movie? It's when Egg Shen is in his lawyer's office uh-huh. and he's saying, Jack Burton is a hero. Leave Jack Burton alone. What he did for us, you guys will never know. The studio <laughs> forced Carpenter to put that in the movie. It should have opened up with the blowhard talking on his CB from the Pork Chop right. Express right. and just everyone knowing, well, this guy's an idiot. Right? This guy's obviously an idiot. Okay? But it opens with that scene instead because, again, 20th Century Fox didn't know didn't that Jack Burton wasn't the star of this movie. And so they needed something at the beginning to set everybody up to say... Jack Burton is the hero of this movie, even though everything that happens right. after that scene right. tells the exact opposite story. And Rob, this, despite the fact that they didn't know what movie they had and they made these uh, strange demands on the movie, it's become such a cult classic and has endured yeah. over 35 campy but enduring. How on earth could this fail at the box office? It's honestly an excellent question, Scotty, because all of the pre-screenings everybody loved this movie right. carpenter right. and russell yeah they thought they had a huge hit on their hand and all of the if you go back and look at any of kurt russell's interviews you know when he was stumping for the movie before it opened mm-hmm. that's what they were talking about how huge this is going to be they thought they had the next raiders of the lost ark oh, that's wow. what this movie was in their mind mm-hmm. and then 20th century fox they just they didn't know what they had. Mm-hmm. I mean, you even look at the posters, the one that you put on the, you know, our opening, you know, thing and the, the to, to promote this, Scott, the, uh-huh. the white one is again, Jack Burton smack dab in the middle. <laughs> you also got Gracie there. The original poster is the green one, which is just Jack Burton smack dab in the middle. And it's kind of almost a Star Wars callback where Gracie's on the ground hugging his leg. I mean, they even got Gracie wrong for God's sake. Okay. But. None of the Asian heroes, Dennis Dunn, Egg Shen, none of these guys are on the poster. Wow. Right? This yeah. is, as far as 20th Century Fox was concerned, this is a Jack Burton movie. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just bombed. They didn't know how to promote this weird, yeah. funny, action ghost movie, and they screwed the whole thing up. 
What's so interesting about that is um, I, I know a lot of you in the chat room and a lot of you listening listening to this podcast at a later date will remember that you, Scott, you talk all the time about early in your career, one of the biggest things that you had was a rejection letter that went kind of like, you know, this is great. It's yeah. just, I have no idea where to, is it sports? Mm-hmm. Is it it's sci-fi? Is it thrill? Like, I don't know yeah. where to put you on a bookshelf. Mm-hmm. And, and now that matters less because... People find content in different ways. But back in the day when you were writing a book, the yep. way you did that is you went uh, to a bookstore to buy it almost assuredly. And then that mattered what shelf it was on. I feel like part of the reason that this movie failed is what Rob brought up at the top of the podcast where mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox got. I, I wonder if there was an executive who was like, this will succeed or it will not blemish my reputation and mm-hmm. gave it one week. One week was New York and L.A. Like, what are you thinking? Like one, one week. week back in the 80s wasn't even a wide release. That no. doesn't happen until week no. three. So this got probably fine numbers, but not great numbers in its launch cities. Uh-huh. And then it got pulled for a while. For no reason, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. But that, of course, would make the movie fail. No question. And it was Can you speak to that, Scotty. You've probably experienced that, haven't you? The things not getting promoted. Yeah, the yeah. things not getting promoted, and mostly because they don't understand what they have. That's that's always a big part of any any entertainment. When you're working with a publisher, you're working with a movie studio, etc. Um, the the people in charge of marketing the thing need to have a, either a good understanding or want to throw a bunch of money to promote it, or hopefully the best of both. Going back to Infected, my first book, uh, it was signed by Steve Ross, who at the time was totally like in charge of in charge of Random House. He was the guy. And they were going to spend all this money, they're going to do all this stuff to make me, quote unquote, the next Stephen King. And then two weeks after I got signed, he was gone, and then it went to other people mm-hmm. who did an admirable job. But it's it, 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 if the studio believes in the film and is willing to spend the money to get the film out to people, it's going to have a much better chance. And this movie had no chance, but it was up against uh, it was up against a pretty stiff competition. Weirdly, in that for American cinema, nineteen ninety six, there were two supernatural Asian themed action <laughs> movies coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Rob, and that that was the Golden Child, which we mentioned mm. earlier, and Big Trouble in Little China. Mm. Yeah, and what the studio figured, what 20th Century Fox figured was, well, we can't beat Eddie Murphy. He's the hottest thing out there right now. So that's originally why they said, well, if we get Nicholson or Eastwood, okay, maybe we can go up against Eddie Murphy. And when they couldn't do that, they said, well, then let's not go up against Eddie Murphy. Let's get our mystical Asian movie out there before the Golden Child. (laughs) So they actually pushed up production. Carpenter only had 12 weeks to like get this movie ready and then start shooting. Okay. And it did end up coming out like 5 months before The Golden Child, but did much oh. much worse yeah. than The Golden Child. Not that The Golden Child did a huge amount at the box office, but yeah, this this movie completely flopped. And to your point A, had they just trusted it and said, "Well, you know, listen, we already got this movie in the can. We might as well start moving it around the country." Mm-hmm. This is one of those word of mouth movies, and the fact that we're talking about it 35 sure. years later proves that when one person sees it, they tell the next person about it. Yep. And I guarantee that box office would have gone up. Yeah, for sure. If they just would for have sure. left it in theaters. Well, and I will tell you, I also think this is true. Um, you know, I. If in the beginning, back in the 80s, when there was no digital media, that when there was only TV channels and there were barely VHS and Betamax tapes and stuff like that, you 
you, you where you were in the world determined whether or not you went to the movies. So of course mm-hmm. they do the first the the pre-release the 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 small releases in big cities like Miami or New York or San Francisco or L.A. But just those two because there's a bigger population there, and they're going to get representative numbers of when they wide release it while they're still printing the prints. You know those next two weeks they're still printing extra prints and trying to decide how many to make. If they they had already done that, and if mm-hmm. they had put it out in wide release, especially in the Midwest in the in the United States, because things went domestic and then international. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but you boys would have gone to watch that three times in a row that first yes, weekend. Yes. You would have gone because it was the one thing to do that Friday that was the most fun, mm-hmm. and then you would have gone right back because it was swell. But they. They hamstrung themselves. They took that chance away from themselves to to actually let the movie shine where it would, which is people who don't have 400 things to choose from, but people who have, you know, 50 things to choose from. It is always going to win, which is why we love it today, because, you know, we're... We're, we it's, have the time to really, put it where it belongs. It's but. really stood up. It's really stood up and done it the has. test of time. Um, yeah. But because of this, Scotty, this yeah. is why John Carpenter for a long time refused to work with a big studio anymore. Okay. Uh, he was just okay. like, all right, you guys screwed this up from the get-go. You didn't know the type of movie I was going to make. You forced me to add extra scenes. Mm-hmm. You kept it in the theaters for a week and then dumped it. Screw you guys. I am out. So even though he made They Live a couple years later, yep. Prince of Darkness after that, those were not big studio pictures. He found smaller studios that would just give him 100% control, mm-hmm. and that's how he produced his movies for the next 20 years. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, so that's, our, that's a general summary of the movie. We've got a bunch of little details that we're going to go into now. And uh, one of my favorites is the Chinese writing that is on the wall. John Carpenter <laughs> John Carpenter shows his vanity a little bit, not only by doing the theme music and the, the, the music for the whole thing. The entire soundtrack is done by John Carpenter. Sure. The song we listened to earlier is John Carpenter's band, John Carpenter singing, mm-hmm. uh, and John Carpenter probably producing everything else. And then <laughs> the Chinese writing we see in the main title translates to evil spirits make a big scene in little spiritual state. <laughs> Close what, enough. What was, what, and then he also throws When lightning in, dies, Scotty. When lightning yeah, dies. When, when lightning dies, it's all this crackling lightning, yeah. right? And when he finally gets crushed. And then there's this little Chinese character that comes up in the crackling lightning. Uh-huh. And it's the character for Carpenter. <laughs> of course, a throwback to the the director himself. <laughs> I absolutely oh. love that. I also, I do love, there's a few things that uh, that Kurt Russell does in this movie, and I'm not sure if it's in every movie, but uh, it's... It, but he's, this seems to be his way of getting into a character. There are several little things that are his mm-hmm. that he brings to, to Jack Burton. He has those crazy moccasin boots made yeah. so that he can he can wear them. And uh, he also, um, there's a scene where he enters the brothel and he's in a costume. And that's actually a costume uh, or a recreation of a character from a different movie, from yeah. a movie called Used Cars. Used Cars, that's right. Oh my gosh. So he, he which, which to me means as an actor, he's like, all right, so if I have to pretend to be somebody like, I'd be that guy from Used Cars, sure. I'll I can be that. Ryan and, Russo again. And because I, I can totally he was be Ryan, that guy. Like he was Ryan Russo for so long. Um, uh, that helps. Rudy, kind of. Rudy, Rudy. What's going on with that? I, that's what I'm it? saying. Look at this. It keeps pegging. That's what keeps I was pegging. We'll bring that down and then put this here and like lean a little closer to her. Having some guys, kind of we don't need to hear about problems. your pegging. It's okay. <laughs> oh my God, Becky. This is a family show. That is definitely worth and a dollar. And this this movie also had a huge influence on one of the most, if not the most, enduring yeah. video game franchise, which is Mortal Kombat. And a lot of people who play Mortal Kombat in the day are familiar with Raiden. 
and Raiden was directly inspired and stolen, if you will, directly from this movie. So this movie's influence not only goes into uh, pop culture and cult movies in general, has influenced one of the greatest video games of all time. And and Lo Pan is is almost directly oh, yeah. a steal of Shang Tsung, right? Shang Tsung in the Mortal Kombat basically is Lo Pan, yeah. right? I mean, that's they, sure, they took yeah. two characters from this and put them in Mortal Kombat, just completely stole them. Finish him. <laughs> and this is uh, Eggshen's offices in Fire Station 23 in downtown Los Angeles. That is a popular film location, including it is the main office in Ghostbusters. Sweet. It was also used in Flatliners, The Mask, and Police Academy 2, which did not include no, King she, she did not come back for the sequels. <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure she knew she did her, her she did her best work for the Police Academy forward a little bit there. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I'll, I'll keep it on. We're having some small audio problems, Jim, so I'm shooting it on, trying to shoot it on the fly. But if you lean in a little bit, I think it's some echo keep, from the wall. Uh, yeah, I, I think so, too. It's, but every once in a while, I'll pe- it'll peg into the red, so I'm trying to be careful. No, okay. nothing from you, Rob. <laughs> no words from you. All in all, we're just another echo from the wall. Rob, what are some of your other favorite, uh, favorite bits from this movie? So it's interesting because, uh, A, you talked about character choices and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Well, there's one thing that Jack Burton is really known for that turns out it wasn't a character choice. The whole second half of the movie, like, you know, when he's just in his little, you know, tank top with the, mm-hmm. the crazy uh, logo on it and that kind of stuff, he is sweating profusely. I mean, mm. he is glowing. There's so much sweat. Sure. And you think that's just, you know, a choice. They're probably spraying him down in between takes or something like that. Now, turns out he had a really bad case of the flu mm-hmm. and sweating the whole time. So probably when they're going down in the elevator and he's saying, is it hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> it was just him because he he was just like just dripping sweat wow. because his Poor body guy. was fighting the flu and it works so well because listen jack burton is in he has no idea what the hell's going on he doesn't know where he is and what he's doing uh-huh. and he is glistening from the nervousness and of course the you know digestive tract issues that he's having at the same that's time. just one of and and you and i have been watching this movie for a long time and that's always been one of the callback scenes out of all the fun stuff in this movie just the ride down the elevator that I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, me too. Just kind of, it's just kind of weird, calm yeah. work. Positivity, between. man. Uh, I will say, feel <laughs> positive attitude everywhere. <laughs> so we uh, we watched this movie in the last couple of weeks. See it, see what it does. It pegs. I'll keep an eye on uh, that. Yeah. Um, so uh, we watched. You this really movie need to find a different word because I'm yeah. going to call back at that. Oh, it's just fair. It's fair. Um, but uh, they uh, having him. Um, have to come in and do the work of what he's doing and him being an actor uh, of his ilk at the time like he also learns to drive a big rig which is completely Mm -hmm. unnecessary completely unnecessary in this scene because all he's doing is that first scene where he's driving over the bridge where I'm not really sure that that was shot live over the bridge because he's eating that ginormous sandwich. <laughs> and we talked about it when we were watching the ginormous sandwich scene because I'm like, oh my God, yeah. it's just, it starts out so ridiculous. But thanks to you, Rob, I found out um, that, you know, of course it's called the Pork Chop Express mm-hmm. and it's probably a pig transport, right? Because as Rob said at the top of the hour, like he's supposed to be in the original script, he was bringing food meat to Chinese railroad railroad yep. workers in uh-huh. San Francisco. So it's the pork. Can't make best. pork lo mein without 
pigs. I'm just saying. <laughs> Filled with pigs. And I found out from you, Rob, that he's eating a ham sandwich. And he's yes. just he's just a mess with it, which is <laughs> which is such a character note too. Like he's ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. and it's insane. And then as he gets out of the car in Chinatown, or the the cab, sorry, in Chinatown, he's still got a little sandwich left. I'm like, oh my god, it's like six feet long. Come on, don't also nothing from you, Rob. Don't mention the six feet long. <laughs> but like, how long was that sandwich that he's eating it for an hour? Yeah, Rob, give us another tip here. I try and see if I can do about A's mic. Yeah, no worries. Let's talk about so rain, thunder, and lightning. Those are like the three lieutenants of of low pan, right? And Peter Kwong's a guy that plays rain, and um, he actually didn't realize until they shot one of the final battle scenes that he was in a comedy. He thought this was a a straightforward Chinese (laughs) martial arts kung fu movie. And then when he's fighting Dennis Dunn and Dennis does the thing with his eyebrows where he kind of goes, you know, ha ha, see, I can do that too. That's when he went, Oh hell! This is a freaking comedy. What? Like he shot the whole movie mm-hmm. all serious, which is good because you need for real comedy. You need some people to play it straight, and oh, so all the villains yeah. play it straight. Well, other than Lo Pan, is completely over the top. But the, the right. three lieutenants play this completely straight, and Peter Kwong was one of them. Right? He also loved that long, luxurious hair yeah. that he got to wear. It cost like three grand and he had to sit in the chair for hours to put that hair on. But he was just like, man, when I get that hair on, I am freaking rain. I, I am uh, this guy. I, I, hope, I hope he hair. got to go out carousing while they were shooting this. I hope he did. I you hope got he got that hair, you gotta go out and whatever your preferences are, when you got that hair, you're gonna get some attention. I think well, You know, I, I won't take too long in this, but I've told you before, um, I know a clown who went to the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey clown okay. school back in the 80s uh-huh. in Florida and would literally like, oh, I'm just going to go home and take a shower and, you know, like be in whiteface and to get from the school to his car in like where he'd parked so he wouldn't have to pay for it. He'd mm-hmm. walk past a few bars. And after a while, he just accepted like, OK, there are apparently cl- girls who like clown. Like he would leave on purpose, leave his makeup on to go out. So I bet for sure Rain right. absolutely was like, can I take this I hope home with did. me? Hell yeah. <laughs> he better got him laid because of that hair. Because that hair was it took gorgeous. So long. Yeah. It was impressive. It was impressive. Hair. And uh, we've not talked about uh, Susie Pye who paid Mao Yin, but Susie Pye was a playmate in 1985 or 86 or something mm-hmm. like that. So a very attractive human being. And she's, when her face, she's a she's, gorgeous. She's face. a she's a gorgeous human. And during the wedding scene with Lopan, when he pokes her with the needle and she flinches, he actually stabbed her in there. And that that blood is real. Did you know that? Yeah. yeah. And that that that. Uh, <laughs> so credit yeah. credit to her. Stayed in character. She didn't break character. Stayed in That's the right. scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, because she, she didn't, she does not have a lot uh, to her acting resume. But for that scene, she got stabbed with the needle, and she was like, "I'm in it. I'm in it to win it." Yeah, well, there was some pretty good Freudian stuff. I believe that was called like the uh, the needle of piercing, or the or the the long needle of love, or something like that. And the, uh-huh. the sword was like you know the, the sword of, of burning, or something like the that. The burning there's, sword. There's some pretty phallic stuff going on with Lopan. I'm just saying. <laughs> 
Well, we will finish this up. There's one more detail, uh, and that is the very strange. Those of you who played Dungeons and Dragons, and you're now playing Dungeons and Dragons, yes, have you come across a beholder yet? I have not. A beholder, as in Eye of the Beholder, is mm-hmm. a very famous. How tricky they are. One of the most iconic and D and D monsters out there is orcs, goblins, and the beholders on on almost everything in in one cover or another because it's kind of a a marketing thing. So that floating eye, that floating eye with the other floating about, eyes. As a character and on my campa- campaign, I haven't seen it. That is a that is basically a beholder, and mm-hmm. remember this is pre CGI. So that that was. Um, it was created by Screaming Mad George, effects legend Screaming Mad George, who called it the most difficult thing I've ever been asked to create. And over 60 artists and engineers worked on it for that. That's in three scenes, very three scenes. And Yeah, what is it, like 45 seconds of screen? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. And because of all the moving parts, that cost 100 grand just Oof. to make the floating eye, which doesn't really impact the plot all that much other than, oh, Lopan now knows you guys are here. Right, and today wouldn't be anywhere near the same. Per- like it wouldn't cost nearly as much because some of that movement and and whatever would be CGI. I think it would be all CGI yeah. at this point. I think it'd be all CGI. Yeah. No doubt about. It. And some of the eyes from that still exist. Like like some of the people who created it have little parts of it. Oh, how but cool! The thing as a whole, unfortunately, doesn't still exist because uh. I guarantee that would be one of those pieces of memorabilia that some crazy big trouble in little China fan. Oh, would pay a million dollars oh, for right? Yeah, totally, yeah, for sure. Totally. And I, I do think have we covered uh, have we covered what we need to cover for this? Uh, I'm having so much mic trouble. I can't. Yeah, I'm we're gonna, gonna we're gonna you. close this up because the mic troubles uh, <laughs> we're giving us a lot of problems today. Nobody but, knows. Uh, <laughs> but we, uh, as much as we're gonna leave right now, we will also be back on March seventh, and we're gonna be watching PCU in, in, for that for uh, March seventh. The PC watch PCU. It's a comedy about political correctness run amok at a university uh it's made in 1994 which goes to show you that the more things change the more they stay the same and tonight at the pit everybody gets laid (laughs) (laughs) uh this movie starred jeremy piven john favreau david spade and more and uh rob and alex alex desaire so this oh, will be the second right. Alex Desaire, John Favreau movie in three sessions that's right. that Ti- we're doing. Ties back to Swingers. Both of those gentlemen were <laughs> in Swingers. Rob, thank you for very much for being on the show as usual. Uh, are you a fan of PC, Rob? Oh, yes, I am. I am a dirty meat tosser. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely a fan of that movie. Well, Rob, we will Watch see in you. two weeks. You'll understand that that wasn't as dirty as it just sounded. It, but, you know, how can but, they tell with all the exactly. other things you've been saying the whole time? <laughs> Rob, thank you for being on, and we will see Woo. you in two weeks. Love you. All right. AK, let's finish up this podcast, and now we'll go to work on that microphone and see what's going on. Okay. So this was episode 65 of Story Smack. You can always find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram, and his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. And you can find us online at facebook.com slash story smack. We live stream story smack every other Saturday at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler, twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler, and youtube.com slash Scott Sigler. In addition to story smack, we do a once weekly live stream called Sigler in Place. It's on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific time, right here where you're watching us now. And we release an unabridged episode of one of my books every week. It is serialized. That is a podcast that is all free. You can get episodes at 
iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, or just subscribe to it however you choose using any of those formats at scottsigler.com slash subscribe. And we sure do hope that you subscribe so that you can hear Scott's books and more story smack goodness in the future. Until the next episode, we will talk to you all real soon. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.